with the way that learning is designed in healthcare, you would think that we are killing patients left and right with our lack of knowledge about the Krebs cycle. When in actuality, what is harming patients is bad communication, is poorly coordinated processes where we, we have a bad handoff in care, or we have a team that doesn't feel psychologically safe. We're joined by a special guest, Chris Myers, who's an expert in healthcare management, organizational psychology, and medical education. In today's episode, we dive into transformational power of learning culture in healthcare, unlocking the human side of medicine, and driving change through entrepreneurship. Let's get started on Leadership Unboxed with Chris Myers. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Cool. So can you share with us a little bit about your origin story? Who is Chris Myers? Well, if you Google, you know, you'll find I'm like second page of Google. There are many of us, but for me, I grew up in North Carolina and spent a lot of time engaged in kind of teaching in, in very different kinds of settings. So for about 15 years or so, I was practicing and teaching martial arts. I worked as an outdoor education instructor. And so all of these experiences kind of led me to the idea that, that teaching and in particular teaching and, and doing research about how teams work was something that, that I might be interested in. And really I was quite fortunate while I was an undergraduate, I was working as an outdoor education instructor and was thinking a lot about kind of how teams function, how to lead teams more from just the practical standpoint. I was watching teams every weekend and, and for a week at a time, every summer, watching people come together and try to function effectively as a team. And so I was noting things that worked well, things that didn't work, common habits and practices that I saw. And then I was very fortunate to take an undergraduate organizational behavior course with Adam Grant, who at the time was sort of a relatively unknown, already genius, but you know, not quite famous yet, assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, and basically realized that there were terms and names and research studies for all the things that I was seeing and was interested in and effectively kind of realized like, oh, okay, I want his job, like the, the job of teaching and talking about all these things. And so began to work with him as a research assistant a little bit and kind of got the bug from there and haven't looked back. And so I've been engaged in research and teaching around leadership and learning processes and organizations ever since. Fantastic. And along the way, who were some of the more influential people? I know you mentioned Adam Grant, but were there others? Yeah, I was very lucky early on to be exposed on the academic side to just a number of, of great researchers at UNC. That would be, you know, Adam Grant, Francesca Gino, who's now written a number of great books on kind of decision-making around creativity in organizations. Uh, I worked with Dan Cable and Brad Stotts, who are exceptional scholars. So really just a, a number of people who influenced my academic thinking. But I've also had a, a lot of kind of mentors and influences in the 
world I was telling you about before in outdoor education and in martial arts who kind of inform the way that I think about leading teams and the way that I think about, you know, teaching processes more generally, right? You know, it's perhaps not a surprise that after a few years at Johns Hopkins, I started teaching an outdoor based leadership course because those were the, the ways that I had seen mentors really develop others leadership quite effectively. And so, you know, I, I still try to do a poor imitation of some of the great things that I saw folks in the outdoor education space or, you know, really inspiring martial arts instructors, you know, I, I still incorporate those elements into what I'm doing today. Does that mean you're a UFC fan as well? No, I, I never quite got into UFC. Apologies to anyone listening who's a big fan, but you know, it's a whole kind of orientation to thinking about learning when you're working with people on learning these kind of physical, tangible skills, right? You know, there, there's no way to lecture from the front of the room when you're teaching outdoor education or you're teaching martial arts. And so that kind of hands-on, very practical approach to learning was something that stuck with me from an early stage and influenced not only the way that I teach, but a lot of the research that I do as well, how people learn from one another's experiences rather than just from their formal education process. Gotcha. And in some of those teachings and mentorships, what values and beliefs do you feel that you really gained through that time? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think that I've found myself often kind of bouncing back and forth between this very heavily academic world where density and complexity is kind of the norm. Let's just take outdoor education as a, as an example, right? The world of climbing or, or backpacking or kayaking, where it's really pretty straightforward and simple, but the beauty of each of those approaches, um, is, is quite appealing, right? So there's beauty in a very rigorous, detailed, nuanced, deep approach. And there's beauty also in kind of reminding yourself periodically to let go and keep things pretty simple and straightforward. When we work with MBA students on these outdoor expedition courses, one of the first things that happens in the group is a little bit of unlearning that when the group first gets out into the mountains or out on the islands. There's a, a strong tendency to try to approach some of the tasks like kayaking to the next island or setting up camp and cooking to approach it like a complex work project or a complex academic project. And they spend 30, 45 minutes discussing and planning and debating the best approach. And finally, they realize at the end of the day, like you just, you sit down and you do it. And that's all there is to it. And that if you just dove in, it would take 10 minutes to accomplish rather than 50 minutes to, to plan. And so for me, from a values or philosophy standpoint around leadership, it's trying to remind myself of like, okay, when do we really need to go deep on things? When is it important to kind of take that rigorous, thorough academic approach and make sure that I've exhausted every possibility and understood something fully? And when is it time to like sit in a kayak and start paddling and trust that I'll figure out all the, the nuances and intricacies along the way. That's, that's very insightful. Now, when you're not 
in the dense environment of academia, what activities do you engage in to recharge and find that balance that you were talking about before? Yeah. I mean, the main one, I have two small kids. And so you want to talk about the, the duality of deep and complex, but you know, straightforward and simple. The five-year-old and the two-year-old keep me very much engaged in that of trying to to keep up with them just physically, right? That's my my exercise plan. And then my my recharging is them figure things out and playing games with them or or doing Lego sets or things like that for me is is really rewarding. And then periodically if I get some time just to myself, getting outside and either hiking or or kayaking, both of those are kind of big recharge activities for me. Got it. So you you enjoy seeing your kids go out, try some things and learn. Can you share a specific moment when you realize the importance of vicariously learning and applying it in healthcare or other knowledge intensive environments? Yeah, it goes back a little bit to those, those outdoor education days, right? So, you know, before I had the terminology and the, the sort of academic understanding of these things, I was realizing how much of what we did was learning from other people's mistakes, right? So like healthcare, rock climbing, sea kayaking, these are domains where reality is, is not super forgiving of bad mistakes. And so you don't want to be doing everything through trial and error. You want to be learning from mistakes that, that others have made in the past. So that was just kind of par for the course that instructors or, or experienced guides would sit around and kind of swap stories of experiences that they'd had and ways that they got out of a bad situation. And you kind of locked those away. And when I started doing research in healthcare organizations, I was observing similar sorts of patterns, but we hadn't really studied that phenomenon as directly, right? We think about it. We talk about it a little bit. There's this concept of see one, do one, teach one. We recognize that there's value in understanding how other people have done things, but really trying to put some parameters around how that unfolds in organizations. We hadn't really done as much. There was still an assumption that most learning happened in people's heads on their own. And so for me, in some ways, it was starting to formalize something that I saw very organically, but that we hadn't and understood perhaps as well as we needed to. Got it. So in that see one, do one, teach one cycle, I feel like you've probably done this many times. How do you stay curious and motivated in your pursuit to understanding, improving leadership and learning in complex organizations? I think part of it for me is the joy of being able to kind of pursue discovery for discovery's sake. So, you know, there's no bottom line at the end of the day to, to say, okay, well, we have to, we have to figure this thing out and then figure out a way to sell it or market it. Right. So there's sort of that intrinsic curiosity that gets rewarded. But for me, part of the reason that I study sort of knowledge intensive work and healthcare in particular is that when we can improve our learning processes, when we can improve the ways that we lead teams and units and organizations in that industry, the, the outcome is improved health, right? It's maybe a, a little bit grandiose, but you know, when we learn better and when we lead better, we save lives in 
healthcare organizations, right? If we make fewer errors, if we collaborate and communicate better and don't have a mistake in the ways that we're delivering care to patients, that's good for people's health and well-being. And so to studying the banking industry where we would be studying how people learn and lead in pursuit of higher gross returns for, you know, an investment portfolio, being in an industry where, where we study things that, that at the end of the day could have life or death implications for people, it keeps the, the motivation and the engagement high. You want to make sure you get it right and want to find out what we can that might be useful. Absolutely. Now, learning to learn, learning to lead, in your opinion, what are some of the critical leadership qualities needed in today's world to navigate this complicated healthcare ecosystem? I think whether we're looking at healthcare or any other kind of complex knowledge intensive setting, um, the biggest thing that makes leaders successful is the ability to adapt to different situations. So we have the, the Center for Innovative Leadership at Johns Hopkins. And through that center, my colleague, Mike Doyle, and I have been doing work around this idea of present moment leadership, that really effective leadership is trying to understand what a particular moment asks of you as a leader in terms of your competence, right? How much is a given moment asking for things that you know how to do versus a moment maybe asking for you as a leader to enable others to act and to, to rely on their competence. How much is a given moment asking for your empathy for other people in this situation, right? Is this something where it's a, a high empathy moment where we need to be really considerate of how decisions are impacting other people, or is it a lower empathy moment? And finally, agility, to what degree is, is a moment asking for change of you as a leader versus is it asking for you to, to stay the course? And so you could imagine throughout a day, you're walking into a whole host of different settings as a leader. Right? Imagine just going to four or five different meetings. In each of those meetings, what the team or the, the people assembled in the room or the project need from you as a leader is totally different. And so when we spend time talking about leadership styles and approaches, kind of starting from who is the individual leader and what can they do? We get stuck in a mindset of, okay, well, this is me. And so I need to find an environment where my style of leadership will work well. But the problem is environments and situations are constantly changing. And so in some ways, the best thing that we can do is arm ourselves to be flexible and adaptable to a range of different situations that will ask different things of us as a leader. You may walk into one meeting where you don't need to fix anything. You don't need to provide any expertise. You just need to provide an empathetic ear to people who are struggling through a difficult project. You may walk into another meeting where the team really needs from you as a leader, new ideas based on your competence and a willingness to, to change up the plan. But then you may turn around and go into another meeting where, you know, we've been stuck brainstorming for a long time and what we need is just some stability and a decision and a direction to go in and actually promoting new ideas or being open to changing and, and moving in a different direction is actually, actually detrimental to your leadership effectiveness. What would make you effective in that moment is an ability to kind of choose a path and hold firm. So it's not to say that 
people can magically fit every single moment. We all have our kind of defaults and our preferences, but the extent to which we can learn to stretch those a little bit and become more malleable and more comfortable adapting to a range of different situations. I think the more successful we can be in the uncertain complex environments that we see in many organizations. Sounds like being able to be flexible and adapting is really important. And what if there are ideas or initiatives that you as an individual or your team is trying to push within organizations? What strategies do you use to advocate for change within organizations, healthcare or otherwise? Yeah, I think when it comes to change, Kathleen Sutcliffe, a, a professor at Johns Hopkins, who, who's been a big mentor of mine, always starts conversations about change with the idea that we're often tempted to try to change people's attitudes or change culture, or change the way we kind of think about things. When in actuality, it's much more effective to try to change the things that people do, the way that they have to act and interact. And our attitudes and our culture and our, our sort of thinking about what we're doing changes accordingly, right? So we, we try to change minds and persuade people and, and get them to think in a certain way when often the, the more effective changes is, is getting people to act in a, in a new or different way. And so I think when we're, we're thinking about change in healthcare organizations, one of the ways that, that, that is manifest is through things like pilots, things like kind of small, early stage versions of an initiative. I think we, we fall into a trap sometimes of trying to talk through the idea at its full developed stage, right? What does this look like at a hundred percent and try to persuade people of that. And it can be either too abstract or too divergent or just too threatening you know, to the status quo to try to persuade people to do it. If we come at it from another way of changing the way that they act and interact in small ways. So let's, let's pilot this, let's roll out a, a prototype of it rather than a whole new reporting system. What if we just tried getting people to use this small version of it, this little tool and just change the way that people act that can often be a more effective way into changing the way that they think about things. Now, we all have a limited scope of control, so we're not always able to roll out a pilot or, or change the way that others are acting. But I think just bringing that approach can help us be more effective in advocating for change because it reminds us that it isn't a game of persuasion and sort of thinking. It's a game of acting and moving us towards a new way of thinking through our actions rather than just through conversations and words. Thank you for that. Yeah. And when we look at organizations in the past or larger organizations in today's world, we see a lot more of the command and control leadership styles, but there's an emergence that's shifting towards transformational servant based approaches. What's your recipe for motivating and engaging teams? One of the most important things that we forget with motivating teams is, is really trying to understand what it is that, that people need and kind of, if there's a lack of motivation, where that breakdown is occurring. So, you know, 
there, there are individuals who engage in servant leadership or transformational leadership in theory, right? That they say, I'm here to support you. I'm here to, to back you up. You, you have an open forum for voicing your, your say and your, your input. But if we're not really attending to what the gaps are or what the challenges are that people are experiencing, we can end up making decisions from a servant leadership standpoint that are equally as kind of ineffective as if we had just engaged in command and control. And so for example, there, there's a lot that looks at kind of empowering leadership, right? We're going to empower people to be able to do things, but where we see that go wrong sometimes is when we empower people to do things, but we forget that they probably need resources and training to be able to do some of those things. So just saying, I'm empowering you to take on responsibility for X decision or for Y care pathway in the hospital, but not then backing that up with resources and training, sometimes even well-intentioned, right? I want to empower you all to do it. I'm not going to make you sit through a boring training about all this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a cool, empowering servant leader, right? Well, we missed the boat that actually where the breakdown was or where a challenge was, wasn't in the opportunity to do something, right? To, to launch a new care pathway. It was in the ability because we didn't have the resource base to be able to do it. And so we see people kind of miss the, the true problems in pursuit of what might look like a sexier, sort of more avant-garde approach to leadership, but is missing kind of the, the fundamental building block, right? Any tips to digging in deeper to properly identifying the root cause of issues or gaps in teams from that perspective? There's a really old bit of research on this, this idea of expectancy theory. So this is research by Victor Vroom and others that motivation, individual's motivation is a function of three different beliefs, expectancy, instrumentality, and valence. Right? Now we're in the, the deep nerdy academic side. So let me flip back to my outdoor ed side, right? It's, it's ultimately answering three questions, which is if there's sort of my, let's think about I can control my effort to engage in some task to perform at a certain level, right? So I have my effort that I put forth to create a certain performance, and then there's an outcome that I get from that performance. Very simple example would be put forth more effort. I hit a certain sales quota and I get a bonus, but it could, it doesn't have to be kind of nuts and bolts and dollar amounts, right? It may be, I kind of develop myself and I, I build up my skills to be able to deliver a, a powerful public address to folks. And the outcome that I get is recognition and accolades from the organization, right? So either one of those, we could kind of break down into this idea of, I put forth my effort to reach a certain level of performance that will get a particular outcome. What expectancy theory says is that that's basically a set of three beliefs or three questions. The first is if I put forth the effort, will I achieve the level of performance? The second is if I achieve that level of performance, will I actually get the outcome 
And then the third question is, do I care about the outcome? And the reason that I bring this up is that I think as leaders, we forget to kind of examine those three questions for people who are struggling or are demotivated, right? So we've got somebody who's not performing well, they're, they're disengaged, they're demotivated. And we think I need to dangle a bigger carrot or a bigger stick out in front of them, right? That it's a problem of valence in essence, that there needs to be a bigger outcome in order to motivate their behavior. But like we were talking about before, it might actually be a different problem. It may be an expectancy or an instrumentality problem. An expectancy problem would be, I don't have the resources to perform at this level. So I've been told I need to see 75 patients a day. And I don't believe if I put forth my effort that that is a, an achievable performance level. So you could promise me a billion dollar bonus if I do it, but it isn't the amount of the bonus or the amount of the outcome or the number of accolades that I'm going to get. That's not what's demotivating me. It's the fact that I don't see that link between my effort and this level of performance. Alternatively, it could be that, you know, I don't trust this organization, right? If I perform, if I see that number of patients a day, will I really get this bonus? Cause I've been burned before. I was promised that if I achieved a certain level, I would get a promotion. And then I didn't, I achieved that level of performance and I did not get the promotion. That would be in expectancy theory terms, that would be a broken instrumentality belief. So using that framework to try to figure out where is the breakdown happening? Why is, if we see somebody who isn't putting forth the effort that we might expect or, or think that they're capable of, we have to start actually looking at the whole chain of events to say, is it that they don't see the link between their effort and this level of performance? Do they not see the link between performing at that level and getting some outcome they care about, or do they just not care about the outcome, right? We often go right to the third one. You don't care about the outcome and we miss that a breakdown could be happening somewhere else. So using that framework for me is always helpful for trying to think about if I see a student or a team member who's disengaged, I try to figure out where, where is that, that breakdown happening? Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that framework. I think that really does help highlight a couple of other areas that folks might not be as aware and in tune with when looking at evaluating team performance. And as a leader in both academia and healthcare, you're being pulled in many different directions. How do you balance competing priorities and managing stakeholder expectations? Well, I appreciate that your question implies that I do balance them and have any kind of success on that. I mean, I think I've been very fortunate that there's been growing interest in the, the topics that, that I'm studying, the, the questions of, of leadership and development in healthcare organizations. And so I find that stakeholders on kind of the academic side, those who are interested in organizational behavior and organization theory and leaders in the healthcare space are increasingly kind of interested in the same sorts of things. So it's a little bit easier to balance. But for me, the, the, the blend of research and practice has always been really important. I mean, I think it, it goes back to this idea of bouncing between the worlds of academia and outdoor education, where we're, we're really just focused on practical implementation in one and rich conceptual understanding in the other and being comfortable 
kind of bouncing back and forth between those that it, each side has a lot to inform the other. I think that that same thing applies to kind of the you know, organizational research and healthcare communities that healthcare audiences often aren't interested in the, the 40 page theoretical treatise on learning theory that an organizational scholar might be interested in, but finding ways to translate that for that audience can be incredibly impactful. Correspondingly, the complexity of issues and challenges that are arising in healthcare add a lot of detail and substance to our theories of organizing. And so for me, the balancing act has been kind of finding the points where there's something of interest to multiple stakeholders or multiple parties and, and seeing if there's a way to bring those together. And I think that's where your innate desire for discovery kind of comes into play to help find the, the missing puzzle pieces that might be able to connect the two together. In terms of research, what are you striving to drive towards with some of the research that you've done, some of the research that you're in the middle of publishing? Yeah, I think right now, certainly over the last couple of years with the, the pandemic, a big thrust of my research has been figuring out how do some of these learning processes apply to the new knowledge that we've had to develop during the pandemic, right? So there are some interesting projects with colleagues looking at, you know, how did, P, how did healthcare professionals learning processes change when our usual means of learning started to fall apart? Right? So both in terms of where people look for knowledge. So you couldn't just look to a central authority for the latest guidance because the guidance was evolving very rapidly, but also there were questions of how we disseminate it. So with some colleagues, we've looked at the role of safety officers in healthcare organizations who were basically kind of promoting the, the latest understanding of PPE and kind of provider protection policies and trying to disseminate that knowledge, but also enforce policy throughout healthcare organizations to help people kind of get up to speed with new guidance on transmission of COVID, especially in the early days. So there was a lot of that over the last couple of years. Right now, some of my work is kind of pivoting back in a sense to thinking about core questions on how people learn in the workplace. So looking at, at some work on kind of learning under pressure, when do people learn best under pressure? And then taking that to an extreme, looking at kind of the role of knowledge in crisis situations. So with a wonderful colleague, Derek Bransby, who's currently a, a doctoral student at the Harvard Business School, but earned an MBA from Johns Hopkins, we're looking at airline and incidents. So not just commercial airlines, but also general aviation accidents and incidents and looking at the role of pilots knowledge that they've accumulated through their hours flying different types of aircraft and the role of that distribution or specialization of experience in predicting how severe these accidents and incidents are. So for me, it's always kind of coming back to figuring out how how do we use our, our knowledge or engage in learning processes in ways that, that help us kind of navigate 
a complex or, or demanding environment, whether that be in the healthcare setting or in other kind of knowledge intensive work. Thank you. Yeah. And in speaking with doctors and medical professionals, there does seem to be an inclination to be opening to, to learn and to kind of provide that culture of continuous learning. How do we foster more of that spirit in other communities within the healthcare system and outside? I think it's a, it's a very interesting question because I think healthcare has this kind of dual culture of, it is quite obviously an, an environment of tremendous learning and tremendous continuing learning, right? There, there's continuing medical education, right? We have baked in structures oriented towards continuous learning. At the same time, many of those structures, many of those practices are still they're They're oriented around kind of an old way of thinking about knowledge and learning and knowing that we, we give you multiple choice questions and you either know these things or, or you don't when we know that learning is much more interactive, much more collaborative when it comes to kind of on the job learning and, and the development and application of knowledge in these complex environments, it's much more about how do I put together different pieces of puzzle that we might all have on a care team and use that to try to resolve an issue. And so on the one hand, I think there is a great culture of learning in healthcare. I think the challenge is expanding the definition of that learning, that learning in healthcare is not continuing to read textbooks after medical school or after nursing school and passing exams about how many facts you remember. To be honest, those are the things that are pretty easy to look up, right? We can look up the answers to many of the types of questions that we quiz and test people on. What's much more challenging is engaging in, in the kind of interpersonal learning. How do I learn how to collaborate with an interprofessional team, right? You're thrown into that as kind of on the job training in many healthcare organizations that you just have to figure that out. And as, as a colleague once quipped and, and I now have used this line myself you know, with the way that learning is designed in healthcare, you would think that we are killing patients left and right with our lack of knowledge about the Krebs cycle. We devote countless hours to studying and testing people on the Krebs cycle when in actuality, what is harming patients is bad communication, is poor coordinated, poorly coordinated processes where we, we have a bad handoff in care, or we have a team that doesn't feel, you know, a, a member of a team that doesn't feel psychologically safe and, you know, doesn't speak up about an issue that they see going on because they don't want to get reprimanded or chewed out by, by a more senior person, right? Those, those are things we can learn about and we can learn practices to improve them. It just feels very different. I think for folks than what they typically are used to, to thinking about when we say continuing education or learning in healthcare. So it's a, it's a very long winded way of saying, I think there's a great culture of learning. It's now a question of how do we shift the, the focus and the emphasis that we don't need to keep quizzing people on clinical presentation of different disease processes because we can look that stuff up. How do we start a, a CME exam or course 
on communication and collaborative processes. That would be, you know, the most exciting thing for me. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it sounds like the continuous learning is going to be less indexed on the technical components and more grounded in the human aspects. So what role does unwavering humanity play from your perspective at the intersection of management, organizational psychology, and medicine? I think it's, it's huge, right? I mean, if there's a, a critique of sort of the learning culture in healthcare, it's that we often forget that the people delivering care are humans. So I think we're, we're very good at remembering the humanity of our patients. I hope, right. That's a struggle as well at times, but I think there's lots of discussion about the, the humanity of patients. I think thinking about the, the humanity of individuals working in healthcare as well is a, a reminder to start thinking about things like collaboration, about respect, about civility, right? There's wonderful research. I mean, Christine Porath has done great work on civility, a team out of the University of Florida led by Amir Ares. They've done randomized trials of civil versus rude interactions, and they find pretty big effects on people's delivery of patient care. So all of these kind of human components to our interactions matter tremendously to our ability to, to care for patients. And I think we forget that when we overemphasize, as you said, the, the technical expertise and assume that we're these superhuman people in healthcare who one can absorb and remember all of these technical details, but two, sort of making the assumption that we don't need to worry about some of these other elements because we have these superhuman professionals, I think it can be a blind spot for us. And so to me, this idea of kind of humanity at the core of how we approach patient safety, how we approach learning, how we approach leadership in healthcare is absolutely essential. Thanks for sharing that. And there's so much information. I want to take a step back and get this more in the general public kind of domain here. There's so much information out there nowadays. It multiplies every hour, it seems. How do you digest and make sense of all of it? I just asked ChatGPT, you know, speaking of, of things that are out there and, and developing now, which I say tongue in cheek, but the, the development of tools alongside the, the development of information has, has been pretty impressive. The sort of the wiki culture right, of guidelines and, and things like that have certainly been very useful for me, especially working at the intersection of multiple different disciplines. I mean, I, I know I am not keeping up to date on all of the things that are developing in, in the communities that I'm a part of. And so social media feeds have in some ways kind of served as a, a more robust journal table of contents for me that I, I find out about new research or new projects that people are working on. So it's kind of hard to say how, how you process, how anybody processes or makes sense of all of it, but I've been increasingly kind of leaning on, on technologies and tools to 
to try to just stay at least aware of different things that are happening. But as you said, it, it's increasing in magnitude every single day. What isn't changing is, is our need to kind of function and, and coordinate effectively among people. And so it's a little bit of my sort of pitch to healthcare providers of focusing on these core sort of human aspects is a way of continuing to improve performance, even in the face of ever-changing information, because time that we invest in studying for an exam is getting increasingly less valuable, right? 30 years ago, the saying was that everything you learned in medical school is obsolete in 10 years from graduation. I would guess it's two years, three years max now that things have changed. So let's invest our brain cells in getting better at how we interact with other people and trust that Google and Wikipedia will have the correct dosage of different drugs available to us, or it'll be an epic. And so we can maybe purge that one from, from the brain. Thanks for sharing. So a blue sky, what's an emerging pocket in healthcare where you think that you'd like to see change or you'd like to see more advocacy for change? It's a great question. Most of my work has, has really been focused on kind of the, the health delivery space. And so I'm, I'm certainly not as knowledgeable as, as many others about kind of other domains within the health system. That said, kind of payer side and particularly the processes involved in kind of health insurance, health, kind of the equity that is or isn't created by some of the processes that are in place within health insurance companies or, or other kind of payer environments, I think is somewhere that we're starting to see more and more advocacy for change, which I certainly welcome and appreciate. I think we're also seeing more of an emphasis on equity and more advocacy for change in the technology space as well. I think recognizing that even at a fundamental level, some of the technologies that we rely on down to pulse oximetry, there are challenges in delivering equitable care, right? But the tools that we're relying on, if pulse oximeter we're relying on to make care decisions works differently for people with darker versus lighter skin, then, you know, we're baking inequity into our care processes from the get-go. And so I think this recognition that even our technologies are, are sort of not value neutral in a way, you know, or not kind of care neutral, I think has been a really interesting evolution and seeing the work that that folks here at Hopkins and elsewhere have done in that space has been really encouraging for me. Absolutely. Health equity, emerging, important. And let's see where that takes us. Now, wrapping up for listeners, what advice do you have for aspiring leaders who want to make a positive impact in their organizations and the wider community? I think getting started right? There's, we, we put mental barriers up often that something either needs to be fully fleshed out or that it needs to, to be at scale before it can be impactful. 
but I think some of the, the smallest actions can yield some of the largest changes. It may not be immediate, but taking action to try to create opportunities. I think about there's this, this term called intrapreneurship, right? That, that I've always found really appealing and, and partly because it's a reminder that when we want to create new opportunities or, or new impactful endeavors, we, we often think about kind of the, the big bucket approach to doing this. So I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to start a company or I'm going to start a nonprofit, right? And that's entrepreneurship, right? We're going to go out and we're going to create something new. And this idea of entrepreneurship reminds us that there are ways within existing organizations or within existing structures to start to change things up in ways that might feel smaller or less consequential early on, but can actually have a larger impact given the, the scope of the organization that you're, you're working within, right? So the analogy is we often think about the person who goes off and starts their own venture to do something new and, and has a big impact, but if they have an impact, let's say it's a hundred on some involuntary scale, right? But the, the scope of their organization is small and they're limited to a certain geographical region or something like that. Doing something that's one-tenth the size, right? It's got an impact of 10 instead of a hundred, but doing that within a multinational organization that you're a part of, right? Doing even it one one hundredth of it, right? Let's say it's two orders of magnitude smaller, right? Whatever, whatever scale you want to look at, the scope of some of these larger organizations can mean that at the end of the day, you're having a similar magnitude of impact. But we don't think about starting a new initiative within a large organization as being as impactful as going out and starting a nonprofit or a startup or it may be. And so to me, the, the advice is you start wherever you can. It doesn't have to be the, the grandiose, I threw everything away and, and devoted myself to making this positive impact through my, my new startup venture. Um, you can make those changes in, in small, but powerful ways, even within an existing organization. Fantastic. Thank you, Chris, for the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We've explored the importance of continuous learning in healthcare, the critical role that humanity plays in medical education, and how leaders can make a positive impact within their organizations. As we wrap up, let's remember to embrace the human aspects of our work and strive for collaboration and communication in all aspects. I'm Vita Thuit. Until next time, lead with compassion.